We are in the book of Hebrews. I am loving our study. We're going to finish up in chapter 4 and begin into chapter 5. So if you want to be turning your Bibles there, I invite you to do that. I've been having a time with this clicker. A couple of Sundays ago, I know I took it back there and, and uh, put it back there in the sound booth, but when I got home, I realized that somebody had snuck it back into my pocket on the way out the door playing a trick on me. At least that's my story, and I'm going to stick to it. So anyway, now i got the clicker. I think we're going to be ready. Hebrews, the book of better things. You remember we've been calling it that because I think about 15 times during uh, the writing of this letter, our unknown author uses the word better or superior. Jesus is better. He's, he's far superior than the angels. The new covenant is far better than the old covenant. Believe me, it is far, far superior. We want to be under this new covenant, not the old. And so that's what our study of Hebrews is, the book of better things. And this morning, um, our title is Clicker, Our Great High Priest, Jesus our great high priest. Appreciate Eli reading our text this morning, or at least the beginning of our text. We began the, uh, this letter, this epistle, if you will, with this majestic view of the Son of God. You remember the Hebrew writer said that in times past, God has spoken to us through prophets in various ways, in various times, but now, now he's spoken to us by his Son, Right? So it begins with this majestic view of the Son of God who became the man Jesus in order to bring human beings to their place of intended glory. And so by the merits of his faithful life that he lived and the body that he sacrificed in his death on the cross, that which we just got through celebrating, Jesus now represents his people as our high priest before God. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus himself suffered. He was also tempted. And because of that personal experience, he can now assist those of us who are being tempted. And he can provide timely mercy and grace for those of us in our times of trouble. So this is a picture of what the temple would have looked like possibly there in, in the days of Jesus, uh, there in Jerusalem, high, the Temple Mount. This was a huge, huge structure. You see the court of the Gentiles, uh, the place where they would, would consume uh, their meat, uh, their sacrifices. They would give a part of that sacrifice. The, the priest would take his portion. Others, they would keep the rest of that, and then they would share a meal. You can see where they would, would do that. This is a little bit closer up look. They're going into the, to the holy place. And then as we'll see, a little depiction here of the holy of holies. You remember that one time during the year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would make his way from uh, the, the holy place. You see the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And then there was this huge veil, this thick uh, cloth, uh, some four inches thick that uh, they had made, and that separated the holy place 
from the most holy place, from the holy of holies. You see here, the holy of holies, the cherubim, and then right there between the cherubim was the Ark of the Covenant. That was known as the mercy seat of God. That's where God was said to, to come and to dwell uh, in their presence. That's where the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice there in between uh, the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and it was a place of mercy where the, the high priest once a year would make sacrifice for himself and also for uh, those of the people. This is kind of what maybe the high priest would look like. Um, the, the linen ephod that he would wear. This is not a, a photograph. This is just a, a drawing, right? <laughs> this is not a real photograph. John, uh, thank you for being with me on that. Um, the high priest, uh, he wore a breastplate. We, we read all about this when John was teaching uh, uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, a breastplate had these 12 precious gems, and each one of those gems stood for the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is something about what maybe the high priest would have looked like as he would have been ministering uh, before God for the people. So let's look at our text again. Let's, let's dive in and begin to work our way through uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Let me read this again for us. Beginning in verse 14, the word of the Lord. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has gone through the heavens or through the heavenlies, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. You remember the Hebrew writer is writing this to a people that are discouraged for some reason or, or another. They're, they're, they're tempted to want to go back to Judaism, or maybe if they weren't Jews to begin with, if they were Greeks, maybe they're tempted to leave this this Jesus of Nazareth and return back to maybe their pagan lifestyle. Whatever crisis is, is going on in their lives or in their minds, they're struggling with, do we continue to follow this Jesus? We, we've made a profession of faith. We, we said we're going to follow him. We've been baptized into his name. But, but there's this pull, this, this struggle to, to, to want to return. And time and time again, the Hebrew writer is telling them, no, stay with it. Stay with it. Continue. And he says, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Oh, that is so, that is so very important. Because now we can approach the throne of grace. See, they, 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 the, the, the high priest would approach the throne of grace, the throne of mercy, once a year. And if you remember from reading the scripture, they would have to, they would tie, they would tie a rope around his, his, his ankle in case something happened to him in the presence of God and he died and, and because they couldn't go in there. Nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And so if something happens to him, He's not clean. Maybe he didn't sacrifice for himself. And so if something happens, they could pull him out. They could pull him back out. Now, because of Jesus, because he is our high priest, what does it say that we're able to do? We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. 
Oh, we don't have to be afraid. I look out and I see my brother Gordon this morning. I'm just so sorry. I just had to stop and say that. Good morning to you, Gordon. Wow. I was afraid I wasn't going to see you again. I'm so glad he's with us this morning. Gordon has moved, if you didn't know that. But anyway, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we have a high priest who knows what we're going through so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You ever feel like you, you have a time of need where you're struggling? You need some mercy, you need some help, you need some grace? That's what Jesus does for us. He's able to help us in our time of need. Now notice this. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and to offer sacrifices for sins. Nobody takes this on, upon themselves to just be the high priest, okay? You had to be appointed by God. God started with Aaron, and it was through the, the Levitical tribe, the, the tribe of Levi, that that's where the, the high priest would come from. Uh, interestingly enough, in the days of Jesus, at the time that Jesus walked the earth, the high priest, the office of high priest had really been corrupted. Um, they weren't following the laws. They weren't following the rules that, that Moses had, had laid out for them. Um, and the high priest's office really went to the highest bidder. It had been corrupted. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. The high priest was selected by God from the, from the tribe of Levi, appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts, thanking God for his grace, and then to offer sacrifices for sins, appealing to God for his grace. I love this, verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. You see, the high priest that was appointed, he himself was a man. He himself was a sinner. So he not only had... Uh, to offer sacrifices for the people, he had to offer sacrifices for himself so that he would be cleansed, so that he could then approach God on behalf of the people. And so because he himself was subject to weakness, was also prone to sin, the Bible says he's now able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Notice that it doesn't say those who are in outward rebellion. See, there's a difference. There's a difference between being ignorant and, and, and going astray, stumbling and falling that, that we as, as sinful people do from time to time. That's different than being in an outright rebellious state before God. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're in that sort of rebellion, somebody needs to look at you and say, stop it. You know better. You shouldn't be doing that, right? I mean, I think we all need that sometimes. We need somebody to look us in the face and say, you're not doing right. Stop it. But that's not what he's talking about here. People that are ignorant, that are going astray, he's able to deal how? Gently. Gently with them. 
They come to confess their sin, to bring sacrifice to God, and he doesn't shake his finger at them and say, you should have known better. You made your bed, now you got to sleep in it. That's not what he does, because he knows what it's like to struggle with sin. And so therefore, he can deal gently. He can offer mercy. The God that, the, the mercy that God offers, he offers that to them as well, because he himself struggles. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Now, verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. He didn't just push his way into that office. No, God called him to be the high priest. God said to him, you are my son. We read this psalm a couple of chapters ago. Today, I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, even Jesus himself, he doesn't take it upon himself to become a high priest. God calls him, God appoints him to the office of high priest because of his faithful life. Because of the giving of his life, but his faithfulness to God and the sacrificing of himself, God appoints him a priest, not in the order of Aaron or the Levites, but in the order, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about that uh, a couple of weeks from now when we get uh, to that chapter, I think more in, in chapter 7. Now, here's some stuff I want to share with you that's really been... Um, been working on my mind and my heart the last couple of weeks as I've been, been reading through this. Uh, let's just read this and then we'll, we'll deal with it. Beginning of verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So it says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him. From death, and it says, He was heard. God heard Jesus' prayer. Now, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, uh, th this, this could be all of his life because we, we see Jesus all throughout Scripture spending much time alone in prayer, praying to his Father, offering up petitions. But I think what the Hebrew writer here, what he's focusing on is what has typically been thought of is that time when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is just pouring out his heart. He asks his disciples to, to stay awake with me, to, to stay awake in, while I pray. And we, you remember that they fell asleep and Jesus came back and they were sleeping like some of you are. And, um, and, and Jesus had to wake them up. Can you not even wait with me just for one hour? And 
he goes and he prays, and I think that that's really what he's, what he's getting here is about um, Jesus praying in the garden. And it says that God heard his prayer. For what was Jesus praying so intently? Me and this clicker. What was Jesus praying for? So intently in the garden. Let's look over to Matthew chapter 26 quickly. You know this story. Oh, you know it. We, we gathered around the table to celebrate our, our Savior, what he did, his love for us, his sacrifice. But let's go to Matthew 26. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a word that means wine press. There's, there's a heavy, round stone that they, uh, they take the, the olives. The, the, or the grapes, they would put them in these, these um, kind of round uh, containers. I, I can't remember what they're called, but they would stack them up. There's like a pole. They would stack them up over that, and then they would lay this round stone that had a hole in the middle, and they would sit that on top of it. It was very, very heavy. And the weight of that stone, the weight of that Gethsemane would press down, and the and the juice from the grapes or the olives would just run, and they would catch that. That round, heavy press is known as a Gethsemane. So Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane. He is caught between the weight of what is happening, what is fixing to happen. All of that, the sins of the world are pressing down upon him. And the Bible says that he exudes something like sweat drops of blood because of this, this weight that he is encountering. So, Matthew 26, verse 36, the word of the Lord. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Let this cup be taken from me. Jesus prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The New American Standard says, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. All my life, I've heard preachers say this, teachers teach this. I myself have said this. That when Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, what he was praying was that, God, if I can keep from having to go to the cross, if I can cannot have to die this horrific, terrible death, if there's any possible way that you can let that pass from me, please, please let that happen. But not my will be done, but your will 
be done. I want us to think about this for a moment. If you will, think about this with me. Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. Was Jesus praying to the Father, please don't let me die? Please, Father, don't let me die. Because I don't want to. All my life, that's what I've been taught. As a man, as a man, he didn't want to die. And granted, that's the truth. Nobody wants to be beaten and scourged and, and have the flesh ripped off their back with a cat of nine tails and be spat upon and mocked and hanging naked, full of shame in front of everyone. Nobody wants that. As a man, he didn't want to go through that. But is that what Jesus is praying so intently for? God, don't let me die on this cross. Notice what he says. Later in the chapter, Peter, he's arrested. Uh, Peter cuts off the uh, Malchus's ear with a sword. He says, verse 52, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? They say it must happen this way. We sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called more than that. He could have called 12 legions of angels. It just didn't rhyme as well for the song. So we could have, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set men free. He could have done that. He says, don't you know I could do that if that's what this was all about? Jesus knew he had to die. Jesus had been telling his disciples time and time again, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer. We're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to suffer, and he's going to have to die, but in three days he'll be raised. Isn't that what he had been telling his disciples? In fact, when he told his disciples that, uh, Peter said, no, 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 you'll never die. You're not going to die. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. This has got to happen. See, they, they, they couldn't understand that. Obviously, they were thinking of an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. So if your king dies, that, that kind of ruins everything, right? Jesus knew that he had to die. A couple of reasons. The scriptures said that it had to happen. And Jesus... Being God, one with God in the beginning, he's part of the, of the Godhead who came up with the plan in the first place. Am I right about it? So what is Jesus praying for in the garden? God save me from death? No. No, he's not praying that. In the garden, Jesus... Oh, let me read this to you. Um... This is out of Isaiah. Um, there's there's a, a couple of passages in the Old Testament, several when you, when you go back through. The cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's anger was used time and time again about judgment and about punishment. There were situations where this uh, goblet of poison wine, poisonous wine would be, 
they would have to drink it metaphorically, okay, figuratively. And there were times when, when, they, when they would drink that and they would not recover, they would die. Obadiah, verse 16, Jeremiah 25. Here in Isaiah 51, we see uh, them drinking, uh, Israel drinking the cup, but then rising from it. The cup passes away from them, and they rise from it, and they begin to thrive. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, Fall prostrate, that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. So, think with me here. When Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's not asking God to keep him from dying on the cross. That cannot be what he's praying to God for. It cannot be that. Even in Gethsemane, Jesus expected to drink the cup. Notice what he says in Matthew 26, verse 42. He went away a second time to pray to God, and he said, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. He says, if it's not possible for this cup to pass away unless I drink it, he knew he had to drink the cup. His prayer was that after he had drunk it, that the cup would pass that it wouldn't be final. Are, are you following? That the cup of God's wrath and his punishment would not be final, but that after he drunk the cup, after he had drunk it, that that cup would pass from him. That's what it said there in verse 42. Unless I drink of it, it will not pass from me. Is that making sense? When Jesus prayed that to the one who could save him from death. Literally, the Greek means out of death. He prayed to the one, not to the one who would save him from dying, but who would save him out of death. Okay? Jesus knew he had to die. Without Jesus' death, there could be no resurrection. We spend so much time um, focusing on the cross. And, and please don't, don't get me wrong. We need to understand what happened on the cross. But so often, and uh, Steve was talking about the table, the cross was the altar on which Jesus died. But the table is where we celebrate the resurrection. And so too often... We spend all of our time at the altar, but we never get to the table. 
Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. We really don't have time uh, to read this, but dare we not take the time to read it. Oh, my goodness. There are, there are a couple of chapters in the Bible that are just like power chapters. Romans 8 is one of those. I hate to, I hate to say that you know, some of it's more powerful than others, but <laughs> I'm just going to say 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those power chapters. That, indulge me just, just for a second. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go to verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. That's what I stand before you every Sunday and say, because I believe it with all my heart. And he's saying, if that's not true, then, then we're lying. We're false witnesses. But he did not raise... Um, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, look, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. We think about what happened on the cross, that Jesus died, he shed his blood, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, okay? Jesus had to die. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness, right? But Paul makes it very clear. If Jesus had not been raised, then all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that agony would have been for nothing because he said, you would still be in your sins had he not been raised. And furthermore, those also who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ, they are lost if, in fact, Jesus Christ has not been raised. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus had to die. Without the death, there could be no resurrection. Without the resurrection, we are all still in our sins. Was the cross important? Oh, <laughs> all, uh, from the beginning of time, everything was pointing towards that. Jesus had to suffer. He had to die. We, we will not make light of the cross. But listen, without the resurrection, we'd be lost. We'd still be in our sins. The resurrection changes everything. It changed everything. And Jesus knew that. So in the cross, when he prayed, let this cup pass from me, he was not praying, 
God save me from the agony of the cross. He fully expected and knew that he had to die. What he was praying was, God, don't leave me there. Save me out of this death. And I'm going to tell you what, Jesus was faithful to the plan and God was faithful to raise him. And we sit here today and bathe in the knowledge that we are forgiven if we have obeyed Christ. If we've been buried with him, had our sins washed away, we have been washed clean because God raised him from the dead. It's amazing what happens when we begin to understand the text. I told my wife yesterday, I said, you know, growing up the way I did uh, in the church, there are other, there are other groups um, that, that teach things that maybe I don't quite agree with or understand. And I said, you know what, it makes me so much more understanding of why people believe what they believe or how they can understand something because they've always been taught that same thing over and over and over again and, and they, just don't, they just think that that's what it, what it says. And good men, good men and good women have misunderstood things. I think I have misunderstood that all of my life. And if you, if you disagree with me this morning, that's okay. We, we, can, we can disagree with that. Um, but I believe with all of my heart now in, in my study these last few weeks that Jesus, he wasn't praying to be saved from death. He was just praying, God, don't leave me there. I trust that you will not leave me there. This is what, this is what can happen if we truly love God. I want to read this again to you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you need Jesus this morning? Do you need to come to the Father? He's here. He will help you. He will help you in your time of need because we have a high priest who's, who's gone through everything we go through, tempted in every way, yet he had no sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.